evangelicalism in the United States has been hijacked, hijacked by the prosperity movement, which promises health and wealth and a trouble-free life in this life for all true Christians. But in our text, as we continue in our ongoing exposition of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter speaks to us of the normal Christian life, I hope you're looking at 1 Peter 4. You will need your Bible open before you because not only will we be examining this text with some depth, but we'll also be looking at the teaching of Jesus and the practice of the apostles. But you'll notice in verse 12 of our text, chapter 4, that Peter calls the Christian life one of fiery trials. And then in verses 13 through and following, he speaks of the Christian life as being one of partaking of Christ's sufferings. This isn't the first time in this brief epistle that Peter has raised the issue of Christian suffering. Look back, for example, to chapter 1. Probably turn one page backwards in your Bible. And you will notice there, Peter says in chapter 1, verse 6, that you have been grieved by various trials that you're being tested by fire. These trials, Peter says, are grievous. They bring sorrow and distress. Trials are those seasons of pain and loss. Notice what Peter says by way of reminder in chapter 1, verse 6 about these trials, that they only last a little while. You may think the trial is dragging on, but compared to the duration and the glory of the future that God has planned for you, the distresses of this life are incredibly brief and momentary. Trials may be lasting, but they're not everlasting. But it's important to note <clears throat> that hard trials, unexpected trials, come to faithful Christians and healthy churches. The proponents of the health and wealth gospel of the prepare prosperity theology desperately need to simply read their Bibles. For Jesus said in John 16, the night before he went to the cross, in this world you will have tribulation. Paul teaches in Acts 14, through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. Paul continues to write even up to his last epistle in 2 Timothy 3, where he says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. Your values determines how you'll evaluate trials. If you value comfort more than character, then trials will always upset you. If you value the material more than the spiritual, you'll not be able to count it all joy. If you live only for this moment and not for the future, trials will make you bitter and not better. But our context, I hope you'll, you'll look at it very carefully now with me in chapter 4, 1 Peter. Our context is talking about a specific kind of suffering. The trial, look at verse 14, of being reproached for identification with Jesus. Let's seek the Lord's help as we seek to understand this truth now. Our Father, we ask now for the, the work of the Holy Spirit, that he might awaken our hearts and renew our minds. We are mindful, O oh Lord, that to some this morning, our word will be the fragrance of death, and to others the same word will be the fragrance of life. We ask that in this moment now you'd give us insight and understanding, even joy. We pray in the name of the one who has suffered for us, Jesus our Lord. Amen. 
As you're staring at your text in verse 12, we receive an imperative. Don't think. And then Peter goes on to explain, don't think what? But notice first, Peter's speaking to, according to verse 12, the beloved. In other words, the elect, believers, Christians. Peter is not speaking to the enemies of God here. That has to be understood because unbelievers will think that what Peter has to say on the subject of suffering is absolute nonsense. And notice what Peter commands. Look at verse 12 carefully. He gives commands about what you are thinking. Not your words and deeds, but what's going on in your brain. Now this isn't unusual because the Bible regularly tells us what not to think. You remember that Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount says in Matthew 5, don't even think, technically the Greek term there means don't even begin to think, that I came to destroy the law. Again, in Matthew 10, Jesus says, don't think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Paul continues this apostolic model of telling people what not to think in Romans 12, when he says, every one of you do not think more highly of himself than you ought to think. And turns out, it's a profitable Lord's Day afternoon concordance study. If you look up all the things that were commanded not to think, and Peter joins his words to those. Look what he says not to think. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. This takes its place with those other things that we are commanded to think. For example, in Colossians 3, Paul tells us to think this. Set your mind, your thinking, on things above. And then he gets very particular in Philippians 4 when he says, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, pure, lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, anything praiseworthy, think on that. And then again, Paul teaches us in Romans 1, the lost man is known by his thinking. Before he ever opens his mouth, before he ever sets his hand to any deeds, the lost man is known by what he thinks. Paul says, here's what the lost man thinks. More predominant than any other thought running through the lost man's mind is, he's constantly thinking about how to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the lost man's preoccupying thought. Even the believer, of course, we know this, struggles mightily with his thoughts, which is why our shorter catechism states that you and I sin daily in word, thought, and deed. This is why it's so urgent that Paul writes in Romans 12 that we desperately need to be renewed in our minds. And so look at our text in verse 12 as Peter addresses your thinking. He's saying here to believers, correct your thoughts. If you're undergoing a trial right now, a health trial, relational trial, persecution or financial trial, your situation is not unusual. It's not out of the ordinary. You cannot think, I'm going through a trial. I should not have to be going through this. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to believers who that's their response to a trial. I should not have to be going through this. And I'll say, why? Who do you think you are that you're above trials? The perfect son of God lived a life full of trials and you think you can be exempt? 
to live a life of trials is normal. Look at verse 12 very carefully. Peter says, it is not strange when you go through trials. It's common. It is to be expected. Righteous believers, in fact, have suffered unjustly. And that's the particular trial Peter is writing about to believers in the first century. The trial of being reproached for identifying with Christ. Righteous believers have suffered unjustly at the hands of the wicked for at least 6,000 years. There was innocent Abel, slain by wicked Cain. There was righteous Elijah, persecuted without a cause by Ahab and Jezebel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suffered at the hands of Babylonian idolaters. Righteous and innocent, John the Baptist, beheaded by wicked men. Godly Stephen, martyred by wicked men in the midst of preaching Christ. When Paul and Barnabas were discipling new Christians, they made no attempt to hide the opposition believers would face in a hostile world. They said in Acts 14, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul writes again, affirming this truth in 1 Thessalonians 3, when he says, no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you know that we were appointed to this. Christian suffering was not abnormal in Peter's day. It's not abnormal in our day. This week, I get, by the way, on my news feed, I get several news feeds from the persecuted church, word of the persecuted church across the world. It's become almost deafening to me as I read these every week. Brothers and sisters in Christ are dying for Christ around the globe while American theologians try to tell us that our lot is to be nothing but prosperity. This week, fellow believers were slaughtered in Sudan, India, Pakistan, Nigeria, North Korea, Afghanistan, and many other nations. They were killed by Muslims, Hindus, totalitarian governments, and usually there are no repercussions for the murderers. The slaughter of Christians continues and will continue until the return of Jesus. That's what Peter is saying. Look at verse 12. It's normal. Fiery trials, they are normal. The fact that you have not experienced them means that you're abnormal. So what is the believer to do when he is persecuted and harmed, when he's standing for righteousness? Look at the rest of our text. He is to specifically engage in a distinct behavior. He is to rejoice. Peter says in verse 13, Rejoice, and that too is an imperative, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. This is a second command for believing sufferers. The first is correct your thoughts. Don't think of suffering as something odd. Now, in addition to thinking correctly, Peter commands an action for sufferers. They must rejoice. How much? Look at verse 13 in proportion to how much they suffer. To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that's how much you should rejoice. The more you suffer, the more you must rejoice. The normal Christian life, I would remind you, is one of rejoicing. Think of how many times you and I have 
commands, strong imperatives to rejoice. <clears throat> the psalmist commands it. The psalms are filled with commands to rejoice. But in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. Jesus commands us in Luke chapter 6, rejoice and leap for joy for your reward is great in heaven. Paul gives a blanket command to rejoice in Philippians 4 when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. The fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that a man is a believer, is his joy. The message, of course, of the Scripture is Christianity is a life of tremendous and abiding joy. Not despite suffering, but even in the midst of suffering. The Scriptures, by the way, give repeated warnings about complaining in a time of trial. But our text is analogous to James chapter 1 when James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, you may be in this moment thinking, Psh, well, Peter can talk big about rejoicing in the midst of trial, but he doesn't know what it's really like to go through trials. He doesn't like, know what it's like to suffer for the sake of Christ. I want to do an extended historical study with you because the man who writes these words in verse 13, it's important to look at those words and see that Peter is telling the suffering believer to rejoice. The man who writes those words knows much about rejoicing in a time of suffering. He is qualified to tell you to rejoice in suffering. Keep one finger here and look at Acts chapter 5. I want to show you that Peter is not telling you to do something he's unwilling to do. In Acts chapter 5, an extended historical narrative. Obviously, Acts chapter 5 is after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus after the day of Pentecost. And we pick up the narrative in Acts 5 or 17. And remember, all of that I'm trying to prove to you is Peter is qualified to tell you to rejoice in suffering. He knows something about rejoicing during tribulation. Acts 5, 17, the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. They were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles, all of them, put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they'd heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with them came and called the council, that's the Sanhedrin together, with all the elders of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought out. When the officers came and didn't find them in the prison, they returned and reported, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. The captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now let me stop in the narrative for a second before we get to the punchline. This is the liberal party of Judaism. The Sadducees, they're particularly angry 
because they don't believe in a resurrection from the dead, and so they are livid that the apostles, chief among them Peter, keep preaching that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so they have just arrested, according to verse 18, all the apostles and put them in prison, awaiting a hearing the next day. And Luke relates here in the book of Acts a, a wonderful account of a profoundly humorous incident. That night, an angel comes and releases the apostles and orders them to walk right back down the street to the temple and keep preaching. He tells them in verse 20 to speak all the words of life. This is God's way of saying that no one under heaven is going to silence the preaching of the gospel of Christ. What are prison bars? A few strips of iron when the sovereign Lord of the universe wants to free a man. The stone, the watch, the tomb could not hold Jesus. Neither can a jail hold in bondage the ones the, one, the Lord wants released. And the same Lord who can open physical prison doors can release those who are in all sorts of other bondage to addictions, to fear and worry. So the Sanhedrin brings the prisoners to them. Here come the, the walk of the apostles who've been put in prison through the crowds. Another apostle or another bystander says, hey, the uh, apostles of Jesus have been at it over again in Solomon's porch. They're not in a hideout somewhere. They're not in the lamb. They're about 100 yards away preaching. The Sanhedrin is humiliated. God keeps frustrating the attempts of the Sanhedrin to, to detain the apostles, and the apostles keep preaching the message of Jesus. So the apostles are marched in to meet with the Sanhedrin. And they're questioned, they're scolded. But notice what Peter says in verse 29 of Acts 5. This is the Peter who wrote First Peter. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now the two charges the Sanhedrin have just made are this. You didn't obey us. And the second charge is, you keep on preaching Jesus. Answer to the first charge, you didn't obey us. We ought to obey God rather than men. The Jewish civil authorities have commanded the apostles not to obey the Great Commission, which is an imperative. Not to preach Jesus. Peter says, we can't obey you. We have to obey Jesus, who is God. And the apostles, you keep on preaching Jesus. The apostles respond by preaching Jesus to them. Look at verse 30 and 31 of Acts 5. This is our Peter. When he's just been told, cut it out. You keep on preaching Jesus. Do you have anything to say for yourself? So Peter, Peter preaches Christ to them. In verse 30 and 31, he speaks to the Sanhedrin of the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. All this is done without any fear of contradiction or any fear at all. The fact that Peter and the other apostles preach Christ on this occasion is not unusual. That's all they've been doing in the book of Acts so far. So notice the punchline. This is the payoff for you. Because if you're thinking... Peter has not earned the right to tell me to rejoice in the midst of a trial. Here it comes. Look at Acts 5, verse 40. When they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing. Do you see that word? Peter just earned your respect. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily and in the temple and in every house they did not cease, teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. When the Sanhedrin told the apostles not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, they beat them. Now, I don't want you to think a couple of things wrong about this beating. This beating isn't administered by a thug named Guido who just punches Peter a couple of times in the nose. No. A master of the whip is called. Look at verse 40 in Acts 5. This master of the whip administers 39 lashes and stripes to the back of each apostle until they look like raw meat. The administrator of the whip couldn't exceed 40 lashes. That was Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 25, so they give 39. This was no soft option, by the way. There are all kinds of records of people dying from this who bled to death. And so after Peter and the other apostles are beaten, bleeding profusely. The apostles' response to persecution is not whining, lawsuits, petitions, boycotts. Look at their response in verse 41. Joy. They rejoiced. They knew that humiliation goes with following Jesus. They knew that trials go with following Jesus. They expected persecution. Jesus had told them it would come. They did not expect, like so many of us do, to be celebrated by the broader culture and given an advantaged position. Jesus told them the night before the cross, they would be hated by the world. Hadn't Jesus told these same men in John 15, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you? They rejoiced. For all the rest of the days of his life, Peter bore the scars on his back of identification with Jesus. And so now, look back to our text in 1 Peter 4. As I say, Peter has earned the right to say, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. My friends, when you go through any sort of trial of persecution or marginalization or ostracism for the sake of your testimony for Jesus, you must rejoice because of the glory that awaits. Scripture, by the way, is given to equip us. In this text, what you have is a key biblical text that equips you right now of how to respond to trials, especially persecution. You don't need prophetic gifts to see that the widespread persecution of Christians in our nation is not very far down the road. Settle it now. That when it comes, when trials Come to you for one reason, for identifying with Jesus. Settle it now that you will stand for Christ, no matter the persecution. And 
in addition to standing for Christ, you'll rejoice when that day comes. During the first three centuries of the New Testament church and the fierce Roman persecution, Christians were thrown to wild animals, they were crucified, turned into human torches, tortured in the cruelest ways evil men could devise. Hundreds of thousands of Christians in the first three centuries met their deaths with a calmness and a rejoicing that shocked their torturers. But this persecution is not just a first century phenomena. I have to keep reminding you of this. It's not ancient history. This week I've read of outbreaks of torture against Christians in Peshawar, Pakistan, in the Plateau State of Nigeria. So whether we're speaking of the first century or the 21st century, these persecutors are always enraged by one simple truth, Jesus, the worship of Jesus, the name of Jesus, speaking of Jesus. He is always the offense. He's always the stumbling block. Look with me at your status if you're reproached for Christ's sake. Look at verse 14 in our text. If you're reproached, For the name of Christ, here it comes, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, I hope at this point that these words you're thinking, boy, this sounds familiar. They're familiar to Peter, the words of verse 14, because Peter had heard Jesus say the exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount the most famous sermon in the history of the world. You remember that Jesus, in fact, just look back to Matthew chapter 5, and so you can see what Peter knew. Peter had a front row seat when Jesus taught on this. Jesus began that sermon in Matthew 5 with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, of course, are a full-orb description of the character of every converted person. The Beatitudes are the birthmarks of everyone who's been born again. They're the fruit that every saved person will bear. Jesus lists eight traits in the Beatitudes. Look at them there in Matthew 5. First, poverty of spirit. Second, mourning over sin. Third, meekness. Fourth, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Fifth, mercy. Sixth, purity of heart. Seventh, peacemaking. And the final Beatitude in Matthew 5 comes as a shock to our sensibilities. It's the reverse of what we expect. We think that men and women who mourn over their sins, live a life of meekness, long for God's righteousness, show mercy to others, are pure in heart and go about making peace. Won't such people be universally loved? Jesus answers back with an authoritative, no, they won't. Our flesh so deeply wants everyone to like us. And so we'll bend over backwards to get people to like us. Here's where the words of Jesus shock us. According to the words of Jesus, persecution is as much a mark of the Christian as is poverty of spirit and weeping over sin. Peter was right there. Peter heard those words. Look at them in Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. So all that Peter is doing, look back to our text now, because I want you to see who Peter's copying from. In our text, in 1 Peter 4, verse 14, 
And Peter says, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Now, the type of suffering that Jesus pronounces blessed is specific. Suffering for his sake. Suffering for preaching and proclaiming him. Reproach for living for him and following him. This is a suffering that is a byproduct of loyalty to Jesus. Peter agrees. He's simply parroting what he's heard his Lord say in our text in 1 Peter 4 verse 14. Here's his assessment of the Christian sufferer. Are you suffering today especially because of identification with Jesus? Peter says this. Blessed are you. The spirit of God. The spirit of glory rests upon you. Here's where the world's values and the Christian's values part company sharply. Here's where the world sees glory. At the Hollywood red carpet. In media notoriety. In how many followers and clicks and likes you get. At fashionable stylishness. But the believer sees glory in the face of the Christian sufferer. The reflected glory of our suffering Savior. Now Peter wants to make sure in our text that his readers understand exactly what Christian suffering is and is not. Look deeper in the text. Christian suffering is not when you're engaged in sin and then you have the consequences. For example, Peter says in verse 15, if you're suffering because you're a murderer, because you're a thief, because you're even a busybody and you're working the phones all day long in other people's business. Peter says, if you suffer for that, there's no glory there. That's not Christian suffering. Peter's already drawn this distinction, and he wants to repeat it. Look back at 1 Peter 3.17, just the chapter before, when Peter draws the distinction between those who suffer justly, that would be evildoers, and those who suffer unjustly. Now he does the exact same thing again in verse 15 and 16 because his teaching method is one of repetition. As the Apostle Peter writes these words of his text, Christians were suffering horrifically under the Roman Emperor Nero. The fierce persecution of Christians under the reign of Nero began around 54 AD. This persecution of Christians came for three clearly definable reasons. Even secular historians and sociologists say, yeah, the Romans persecuted the Christians for these three reasons. First, because the Christians would not worship the Roman gods or engage in emperor worship. The Roman Empire was a polytheistic society. The worship of traditional Roman gods was seen as essential to maintaining the unity and stability of the state. Christians wouldn't do it, they were persecuted. Second reason, Christians were persecuted because they challenged Romans' traditional ideas of society by promoting the brotherhood of all believers Regardless of social status or background, Christians were hated because they said so in a rigidly caste society. Christians flattened society and said, every man who names the name of Jesus is my brother and I will treat him as such. The third reason, and historians don't like to talk about this today, the third reason why Christians were persecuted so fiercely is because the Emperor Nero was a homosexual who had engaged in two public homosexual marriages and he was infuriated 
at Christians' insistence on biblical sexual ethics. So Nero ordered systematic persecution of Christians. He attempted to force Christians to deny Christ. If they would not, he had three specific tactics. Number one, loose savage animals on them who would tear them limb from limb. Number two, burn them or behead them. Historically, that's what the churches understood happened to Peter and Paul. Peter crucified upside down, Peter beheaded. Or burn the Christians as torches, human torches for his garden parties. Look at verse 16. This is what Peter means when he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian. These were people who did not suffer for evil doing. They simply suffered for confessing Christ and walking in his holy law. How do we apply this word today? A very simple application. If an apostle tells you to expect injustice and opposition for living the Christian life, do not expect to get justice or proper treatment in this life. There are some of you who are, who are justice and fairness warriors. Some of you are raising children. I've met your five-year-old who they are fairness addicts who live in your house. Your children have learned well from you because they always demand, they've heard you do this, they always demand and expect equitable treatment. That's not fair. You must teach them Peter's message. That if they continue, they will grow up to be adults who if when anything does not go their way, if they know any opposition, they will complain loudly, bitterly, and with great length, I don't des deserve this. Parents, you need to repent today of thinking the proper response to any opposition as the church of Jesus Christ is boycotts, complaining. No. Teach your children this. Jesus didn't deserve the ill treatment he got, and we are being conformed to his image. The apostles were reproached, beaten, reviled and even killed unjustly and they rejoiced this is not strange Peter says this is normal let's pray together our father we thank you for the clarifying word that you've given us and so Lord to the extent that we have become partakers of the prosperity gospel thinking that health and wealth and prosperity and even being liked and celebrated by the culture are to be our legacy. Lord, we turn away recognizing this is foolishness and profoundly in error. Lord, help us to walk in humility, expecting the reproach of the world and rejoicing when it comes. We pray in Jesus.